Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the span of a single lifetime, light pollution stemming from artificial light at night has severed the connection with the stars that we've had since the dawn of time. With the nocturnal biosphere significantly altered, light's anthropogenic influence has compelled millions of people to seek out the last remaining dark skies. Marlin's new book, Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the, La- and the Dark Sky Movement, explores the growth of astrotourism industry, identifies star seeker trends, and recounts how the stars have shaped civilizations. Utah is a destination for astrotourism and heavily involved in the Dark Sky Movement. And so today we're going to talk with Marlin about meteor storms, eclipses, auroras, other celestial phenomena along with the 2024 Great North American Eclipse. We welcome into the program uh, now, Marlon. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you uh, so much. We're, and you're joining us from uh, your home in Hawaii, is it? On the Big Island, yes. It's 5 a.m. here. Thank you for joining us so early, your time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So you're on the Big Island. Uh, are, are you near Hilo? Where, where are you? I'm on the southeastern shore. I'm about 45 minutes from Hilo on the um, the southeastern coastline in a district called Kalapana. And uh, four miles uh, going west was the uh, lava flow from uh, the 2000s, early 2000s. And then um, the, to my left, about seven miles, is the one that happened in 2018. Yeah, yeah, but exciting times, maybe more exciting than you want at those times. Um, so I'm going to read your biography. You can find this at your website, uh, mindofmarlin.com. So I'm reading, uh, Marlin is the quintessential Renaissance man, has led a life that reads like a novel, running away with the circus, seeing the world with his juggling act, living in a treehouse in the jungle, writing and illustrating a book, dreaming up an illuminated show that would go on to play internationally, uh, inventing a one-of-a-kind toy and building a homestead where he lives with a solar-powered uh, house. Uh, so tell us just briefly a little bit about your background. Very, very interesting. Uh, yeah, well, the running away with the circus, um, I got hired as a clown, and then after three days got fired. And when you get fired as a clown, you have an existential crisis as <laughs> into what am I good for? So I found out the next day I got hired on as an elephant groom. So for a year, I took care of uh, a herd of uh, performing elephants. Um, then after that, I went back to Houston, Texas, where I was living, and took up uh, my craft again as a juggler and was able to start making rent by age 19. And a, a documentarian, uh, Bruce Bryant, did a documentary of me um, back then called The Street Juggler, which is uh, you can find on my website as well. It was a half-hour documentary. Then I did some, uh, got my first exposure on national television, Don Kirshner's rock concert in 1977, toured with the uh, magician Doug Henning in 78, and then became widely known in the magic community. And then from there, went on to create my own one-man show, uh, toured around the United States, doing colleges, universities, comedy clubs. And then I went on to play cruise ships, Atlantic City, Las Vegas, uh, worked with a ballet company out of L.A. Uh, with the symphony, uh, was commissioned to create interpretive juggling to classical music. And then at the height of my career, um, I was uh, traveling back and forth between L.A. and uh, Las Vegas and uh, wa- watched uh, Haley's Comet go by and had this epiphany about, my, you know, this, this goes by unnoticed every night because people's lights are on. And then not long after that, I actually walked away from my career to reinvent myself and uh, moved to the, the jungles of Hawaii and built and lived in a treehouse with no electricity for five years and had um, some very um, memorable moments about darkness and light, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the lava flow down the street and had this epiphany about all life being drawn to light, which had me create uh, the show Luma, Art and Darkness, which was uh, a theatrical production done entirely in the dark. Uh, we started developing that work back in '91 and then actually started touring it as a cast production uh, a few years later. And uh, it went on to play five continents and over 300 performing arts centers across the United States. And it was all done to to raise awareness to the loss of our night skies due to light pollution. So uh, people sitting in the dark, uh, people often don't have the opportunity to experience darkness. And those who do live out in a rural area 
uh, live under the assumption, doesn't everybody see this? And that's truly not the case at all. Uh, you, I was watching your TEDx talk, uh, TEDx Sun Valley, I believe it is. You can find that uh, at, I believe, at mightofmarlin.com as well. And it's interesting, you, you illustrate the fact that we're uncomfortable with darkness, right? You come out on stage and then you have them yes. turn out the lights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. This first, my first slide is uh, I want to uh, uh, talk to you about light, and then the lights go out. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden people are wondering what's going on. And as astronomers say, it takes like 35 minutes for the human eye to uh, adjust to the darkness. And I say that to my audience. And then wait this pause of like 10 seconds, which seems like an eternity. And then uh, ask the audience, are you waiting? And they're, you know, thinking that, oh, we're going to be sitting in the dark for the next 35 minutes. So, yeah, uh, we have a superstitious fear of the dark that goes back to the time when we were living in caves. Because, you know, when you walked away from the light of the fire and out into the darkness, you might not come back. Um, mm. Let's see, do, do we have you, Marlon? Yes, I'm, I'm oh, still oh, here. Oh, sorry, sorry, you, you cut out just a little bit there. Go ahead. No, uh, that was the end oh, of that, my that, well, that was the okay. Great. <laughs> I, I was I feared for the technology. I, I guess I'm afraid it's going so it's going from Hawaii to here, and I but I, I should I should be uh, more uh, you know secure in the technology. Uh, so um, tell, you, you open your book um, with uh, or near the beginning of the book, you talk about Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Uh, we're we're and you say we're very familiar with the first stanza of that poem. Yeah, but, yes. but but none of us know about the rest of the poem. Yeah, uh, that's in the introduction, and I thought that that would be a good way to really um, illustrate how disconnected we are. So we all know the first stanza, uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are, Up Above the World So High, Like a Diamond in the Sky, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are. But the rest of it, which we never, ever learned, I certainly did it, goes, when the blazing sun is gone, when he... Nothing shines upon. Then you show your little light, twinkle, twinkle, all the night. Then the traveler in the dark thanks you for your tiny spark. He could not see which way to go if you did not twinkle so. In the dark blue sky you keep, and often through my curtains peep, for you never shut your eye till the sun is in the sky. Tis your bright and tiny spark lights the traveler in the dark, Though I know not what you are, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And this was published in 1806 when people needed the stars for their survival. I mean, to literally be able to find your way home or get to the next place that you were traveling to, you needed to see the stars. But we haven't had that need for so long, and I think that's the reason why we forgot to use the rest of the, um, teach the rest of the, 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 the story. So you say that uh, it's in the span of a single lifetime, light pollution stemming from artificial light or artificial light at night. Alan uh, has severed our connection with stars. Uh, so define uh, artificial light at night. Um, artificial light at night is anything that we basically are creating. Um, the, the technology of the wick existed for, you know, over 70,000 years. And then uh, what happened was Amy Argon invented a circular wick. Uh, many people might know this as a hurricane lamp, um, and that circular wick was uh, six to ten times brighter than just a typical candle wick. So that demanded a, a great, uh, a greater need for fuel, and that fuel became whale oil. And at the beginning of the 19th century, there was you know thousands and thousands of ships scouring the planet uh, looking for whales to boil them down and turn them into light. And had we not invented kerosene. Whales would have been hunted to extinction just to make light. And then when um, Edison invented his bulb, in the first year there was 400 light bulbs that it was powering. Within the second year there were 10,000 light bulbs that his dynamo was powering, the Pearl Street Station in New York City. And that number has continued to increase ever since. Now the real explosion happened um, back in the, the 60s and 70s, maybe the 70s. I remember when I was a kid, uh, in the, I was uh, living in Florida, growing up in Florida uh, in my early childhood years, and our backyard was per pitch black. And we remember when the first streetlight went into the neighborhood, and we all thought it was quite novel. Uh, and then what happened is more and more lights started to come online, 
with population growth comes lighting. And then with the advent of LED lighting, we all thought, oh, look, we'll save a lot of energy, but um, we're just simply making more light now than we ever have before. And now 80% of North Americans can no longer see uh, the Milky Way. 60% of Europeans can't see the Milky Way. And uh, about 99% of the world's population uh, in North America and, and uh, Europe lives in, under some form of light pollution. So that drives people to see the sky as it used to be before we um, washed it out with Allen, artificial light at night. I want to underline that 80% of Americans can't see the Milky Way? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, North Americans. That yeah. would include yeah. Canada, but... yeah. You know, most of the population is here. But, yeah, that, that that's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, that is astonishing. And so uh, that's that drives astrotourism, I guess. You know, back in the day, I guess our grandfather's time, uh, this would have seemed ludicrous, right? Uh, you, you, you wouldn't have to travel to, to see the Milky Way. Now you do, I guess. Yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, Alan is both the driver of astrotourism, and at the same time, its biggest threat. So, so, so you t- know, this is, you know, what's, what's happening, for instance, like in Idaho, they just uh, certified the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve, and Boise is having explosive growth. Well, it's only 76 miles away as the crow flies. And as Boise continues to grow, so will the light and the glow on the horizon will continue to glow. And, um, you know, light pollution can travel up to, um, you know, well over 100 miles away, 150 miles away. Mm. So what what uh, kinds of things does astrotourism embrace? What uh, what sorts of things people go, I guess, you know, obviously to see the dark skies, see the Milky Way, etc. What else? Oh, yeah. Well, there's lots of things to see up there. And, and, and technology has, has changed tourism. It's one of the things I write about in my book, you know. Uh, back in the, the 50s, uh, 40s and 50s, scuba, uh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, was only used by a couple of people. Now the, the dive industry, uh, dive tourism, is huge. It's all over the world. So that technology changed uh, the tourism, as it is with astrotourism. Um, it used to be called astronomy tourism, and that was back in the 40s. And it was just astronomers that would go out to look at these celestial events, whether it's a, a lunar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, um, going to travel to see the Aurora Borealis. And now, um, with Valerie Simic's book, uh, Lonely Planets, Dark Skies, um, Guide to the Dark Skies, she includes things like um, space launches, um, space reentries, uh, places like CERN, uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, space-themed hotels. Um, so I've, I've expanded it by also including um, sundials, which I call star clocks in my book, um, astronomical clocks, which are truly marbles. We can talk about that later. And, and, and megaliths, um, these earthen and stone uh, constructions that were built by the ancients that were aligned to uh, star movement or solstices. Um, other things to see in the sky are, of course, meteor showers. And I um, had a, um, wanted to bring up moons and full moons because a lot of um, astrotourists and a lot of astronomers go, oh, the full moon, that's, you know, that's, that's the bane because you can't see as many stars. But for people traveling from a city, they don't really have the opportunity to experience the, the, the ghoulish and ghastly glow of a, of a, of a night illuminated by the moon. It's just truly magical and, and romantic all at once. Um, there's other celestial phenomenon like sun dogs, um, uh, green flash, uh, zodiacal glows. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, with the meteor showers, which are pretty consistent throughout the year, they may fluctuate a little bit. There's those to go see as well. And, of course, you'd have to be, you know, well away from city lights to be able to really experience and take those in. One of the things you write about in the book, um, this is a chapter, Where, When, What, I believe. Um, you talk about satellites. Um, and yes. you, you know, uh, on one hand, um, you could consider this, it <laughs> could be considered space pollution, right? It's very useful, satellites. On the other hand, you, you can view these these things. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. I did a, uh, a river rafting trip uh, through Cataract Canyon. And uh, as soon as the sun set, I was just, you know, spotting lots and lots of these. And that's the best time to, to watch a satellite is right after the sunset. And we're just barely in the, the shadow of the Earth. But high in the atmosphere, the sun is still shining. So that's the best time to see the reflected light on on, on satellites. And then the same thing uh, early in the morning hours. And then you can also go online and sign up for the uh, the International Space Station flyover. And I get a little notice on my text messages, you know, that says, okay, the ISS is going to fly over you at, at this time of day or not at this time of night. And it's going to, you know, start in the northeast and travel to the southwest and it'll be visible for five minutes. So, I, you know, I set my alarm, go out and, and look for it. But the, the, the flip side of that is um, there's, because there's more and more satellites going up, it's starting to impede a lot of astronomers' ability to take, you know, time-lapse photographs of uh, the night sky for, for research. And so that has become kind of a, a big issue. Um, you know, Elon Musk is launching, a, you know, tens of thousands of these and they've already shown up in a number of um, astronomical photographs uh, from different uh, observatories around the world. So the, the community is speaking to him about, you know, can you maybe paint these things with non-reflective light so they don't so much get in the way? And, uh, you know, there's you know tens of thousands of pieces of junk uh, just floating around out in space right now that will, you know, continue to uh, get in the way as we send more and more, um, you know, usable and still functioning satellites and stations up aloft. And that junk just uh, stays there, revolves around the whatever's revolving around, I guess, right? Yeah, it, it stays in whatever orbit it is. And, uh, it, you know, once something loses its uh, um, functionality, it just stays up there. Now, I've, I've you know... I've read some research that there, you know, there's some companies that are looking to go up into space and start nudging some of these things into a orbit that deteriorates. So eventually that will cause it to burn up in our atmosphere and create quite the light show. So I'm hoping that they'll coordinate that and let people know that, you know, such and such a uh, satellite, which has been in disuse for so many years, will be plunging into uh, the Earth's atmosphere at this time of night or day or whatever, so people can uh, go out and uh, check it out. That'll be a new form of astrotourism. Yeah, yeah. satellites burn up. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I was. I guess you. Yeah, just nudge them, then they would go and burn up in the atmosphere. That's the way to take care of it. I was envisioning maybe we'd have to appoint a, uh, you know, a space garbage force, which would go out and clean up. You know, just like people <laughs> clean up the streets, but uh, uh, maybe nudging into the sure. atmosphere is, is a better way to do it. Um, I want to get into eclipse chasing, uh, the, the 2024 Great North American Eclipse, uh, and, you know, a bunch uh, else, and uh, tell us about uh, some other uh, very, very interesting things we can see, but uh, I want to take a break first. We are talking with Marlon. Uh, his book is called Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement, and that's out and available, and you can find him at mindofmarlon.com. He's joining us from his home in the Big Island of Hawaii, and we'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. This is Science by the Slice. Traits that form an organism's appearance are determined by many different genes, as well as the creature's environment. Humans have varied skin and hair colors, as well as a range of heights, which are examples of continuous variation, says USU genetic ecologist Zach Gompert. In the wild, however, different types of genetic mutations affecting appearance sometimes show discontinuous or discrete variation. Gompert uses genome mapping to study varied coloration in stick insects, which enables these creatures to hide from predators. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. 
Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Marlon, and his book is Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers in the Dark Sky Movement. You can find him at mindofmarlon.com. So Marlon, um, I want to talk about dark skies some more. Uh, there's probably a gradation, right, of dark skies. As soon as you leave a city, I suppose, it gets a little darker. Um, but there, there are probably some places that are, I don't know what the official definition is, absolutely dark, and I'm guessing that would equal remote. Uh, yeah, that would equal remote. And um, uh, the there's a, in the book, or you, anybody who's listening can look up a, a, the Bortle scale. That's B-O-R-T-L-E. And that shows the different gradations of light pollution from what your sky would look like in an inner city to what it would look like under a completely pristine night. And, of course, the further away from um, artificial light you go, the more stars you're going to see. Um, So I think there are some fairly close to us here in Utah. I know there's a certified dark sky reserve in Idaho. Are there some in Utah? I think there are some some good places in Utah. You've got a lot of dark sky parks. Uh, the International Dark Sky Association uh, started certifying places uh, back in 2001. And it's a, it's a couple-of-year process because you have to get a buy-in from the stakeholders and local businesses and, um, you know, be able to track down all of the places where there might be some light uh, pollution or light trespass. Um, and so... Uh, getting that certification is is a big deal. Arches was one of the first places to get it, and um, um, yeah, Utah has got a a, a huge um, a, a huge swath of dark sky. Some of the best because it's also it's high and it's dry, which also creates for uh, great viewing. By the way, I pulled up, I just uh, Googled dark skies in Utah, and it took me to visitutah.com, Utah's tourism uh, place, which is uh, kind of what we're talking about here, right? And uh, and uh, little uh, points on the map, there's a bunch of places uh, in Utah that are certified dark sky parks. Um, so uh, under the heading of astrotourism, um, of course, stargazing would be kind of the classic uh, thing. We talked about looking at uh, satellites. Uh, what else would uh, would folks uh, travel places to look at? Well, you know, when you when you finally get further away from uh, the night sky, um, I mean, excuse me, when you finally, you know, when you get further away from a a, a, a light polluted area, let's say Salt Lake City, <clears throat> and you go further out, then you're able to, um, you know, take in. You know, great swaths of the Milky Way galaxy, which is, you know, just billions of stars, as Carl Sagan used to say, billions and billions. And, you know, for a, a lot of folks, they don't give their, um, themselves enough time to allow their eyes to adjust to the darkness. And there is, you know, the the, the first uh, tranche of um, visibility will come after about um, 25 to 30 minutes. But your eyes don't fully, fully adjust uh, for at least an hour or so. And then you'll start to see more stars that you, you had no idea that were, uh, that were up there. And what I like to tell people to do is, you know, you, you, you lay on your back because that's the best way to view. And, and don't focus on any particular part of the sky. So that allows your eyes to take in more of it, and the sky has a tendency to sort of flatten out. And with that kind of soft focus, or not really focusing on any particular thing, you'll start to notice things moving, like the satellites, and that's how you spot them. You know, to bring in a small pair of binoculars, you increase the number of stars that you can see 50-fold. We can only see um, about... 4,000, a little more than 4,000 uh, stars, depending upon which hemisphere we're standing in. There's about a little over 9,000 stars that are visible to the naked eye, both in the north and southern hemisphere. 
And that number um, was uh, put down in a catalog of stars that was started uh, several decades ago. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, there's the comet that goes by every once in a while, in which we just got to see uh, the last one that went by Neowise. And I'm sure the folks there in uh, Utah had a great opportunity to see it. Um, and, and I, and I want to mention that the, the reason why I thought that it would be good to be on this program, because you have so many dark skies, the book uh, helps those individuals who would be looking to uh, service the astro-tourist. Um, there's been a huge rise in uh, Airbnb listings that say, you know, there's a telescope here um, or there's a dark sky here. So more and more people are starting to tap into that specifically. Um, and then in, uh, within the, uh, the, the Colorado Plateau, uh, the number of um, uh, people coming to see it, I just wanted, this is a little quote from a study that was done by um, a couple of economists out of the University of uh, Missouri, uh, David Mitchell and Terrell Galloway. And they write, uh, and they write that um, um, the Colorado Plateau, over the next 10 years, Visitors will spend nearly $2.5 billion, that's with the B, visiting the National Park Services Parks in the Dark Sky Cooperative trying to see a dark sky at night. This additional $2.45 billion in spending creates $1.68 billion in additional value added for the local state economies. The total effect of all of this is the additional spending to create an additional 52,257 jobs that increase wages in the state uh, by over 194 million. So, because it necessitates staying over a night to participate in dark sky tourism, um, that's going to uh, spread that tourism dollar into all of the other uh, vendors in any given particular location, whether it's a restaurant, a gas station, a gift shop, um, and it goes on and on. It says here, for those staying in motels outside the park, the amount is a little over $270 uh, additionally spent. Um, in other words, inducing visitors to stay overnight can increase spending seven, several fold. <clears throat> and uh, I imagine there's room for growth in this industry. Uh, unfortunately, as, as artificial light at night increases, uh, probably increases the demand for this kind of uh, astrotourism. Absolutely. Um and, and one of the things that the Internet, uh, I'm an ambassador for the Dark Sky for the International Astronomical Union and the International Dark Sky Association. And we're, we're uh, advocating and teaching people how to use outdoor lighting intelligently. We're never, none of us are given any lessons in lighting design. We're not aware that the light is bleeding off of our property and through in, into somebody else's windows. You know, for instance, uh, Salt Lake City recently implemented a um, lights-out program that turns out uh, the lights on a lot of their buildings during migratory periods because they found out that the birds were getting exhausted and confused uh, from all of the lights uh, reflecting off of the, the buildings. So now they turn off the lights. So with knowledge comes action. And a lot of the um, lights that were flooding the market, these white LEDs, have a very high blue wavelength, and it's that blue wavelength that is so harmful to the environment and to human health. I'm sure all of your listeners have probably noticed that some headlights seem a little bit blue now. Those are those white LED lights. Practically everybody that I've spoken to comment on that and go, yeah, they're really glaring. Well, uh, it turns out that that short wavelength is actually impacting the back of the retina. And the, the French version of OSHA, or the uh, um, FDA, has found that these blue wavelength LEDs, the, uh, these blue LEDs that emit this kind of light, can actually create permanent damage to the retina. So we advocate trying to move towards a warmer light. Um, the American Medical Association uh, put out public guidance in 2016 saying no outdoor lighting should be, or any lighting should be over 3,000 Kelvin. And if you could move towards a 2,200 Kelvin, which is a warm amber, which is what pretty much people have been living under for the last 50 years, 
high-pressure sodium lights. And so those kinds of lights don't cause the pupil to constrict as much. You know, if you, we think that our eyes evolved with firelight over the however millions of years that humans have walked the planet, you know, that number keeps changing depending upon which archaeological dig you have, that's our ocular nerves were uh, evolved uh, around using firelight at night. So that's why we find these warm colors as being more comfortable to be under. So as we move towards those warmer LEDs and warmer lighting, we're able to preserve our skies. So it's possibly to light our streets safely and still see the stars. In your TED Talk, you talk about how you uh, early on talked about light pollution, and then you evolved talking about pollution that comes about because of light. And you talk about wasted light. I wonder if you could give us some of those stats. It was pretty spectacular what you presented. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, uh, such a, tr- a tremendous amount of CO2 emissions are created every year from outdoor lighting, outdoor residential lighting. And 30% of that is wasted because it goes up, and that's, that creates sky glow. You know, any kind of building lighting, billboard lighting, anytime a light is pointed up, most of it, not most of it, excuse me, 30% of it is going to spill off of the object that's being lit, whether it's a monument, a sign, a building, and then travel upward. So that's basically wasted light. And then other people leave lights on for no particular reason. And the metaphor that I use is a light that is left on with nobody using it is no different than an oven being left on with no food in it. So it's up to us if we're really uh, wanting to be conscientious about climate change to lift a finger and flip off the switch and and turn off unnecessary light. And um, I think... What I've kind of noticed is as people start to turn off their lights, there's uh, the body starts to relax more. Um, you know, artificial light, and uh, it throws off our circadian rhythms. And these high Kelvin temperature lights have been linked to, um, through the American Medical Association, it has found through studies that it's linked to obesity, diabetes, melatonin suppression, uh, sleeplessness. Um, and, and obviously, you know, some forms of cancer. So obviously, we are meant to rest at night and have the experience of darkness, which is very calming. Um, and, you know, when, when you don't have that, you know, people who live in cities and they can't escape the darkness, you know, it creates, a, I, I notice for myself, a certain form of agitation. And it's one of the reasons why I live out here in an extremely rural area. It's 20 minutes to the nearest town, and I'm off the grid. And, you know, I really enjoy being able to experience the cycles of night. Like, for instance, last night, it was it's close to the full moon. It's bright enough to read by. And, and travelers in the old day used to time their trips to market on either side of the full moon because they could still, you know, drive their carts and horses at night and, and see perfectly fine. Mm. Let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back with more with sure. Marlon. Uh, his new book is Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. Uh, and you can find it at mindofmarlon.com. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, presenting 33 variations, discovering why Beethoven was compelled to write 33 distinct variations on a simple theme by a minor music publisher. Information at utahfestival.org. It was loggers versus environmentalists. Buried right up to his neck in a barricade of boulders, and that is what held off that front-end loader. Inside the Timber Wars, on the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's music for yoga, hypnotic and mesmerizing music for seeking spiritual enlightenment, improving health, and shedding the stress of the modern world. I'm Rosalie Howarth. 
Join us for Yoga Around the World on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in April. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have about 10 minutes or so left in this conversation with Marlon about his new book, Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. And you can find him at his website, mindofmarlon.com. He's joining us from the Big Island uh, in Hawaii. Uh, so, Marlon, it's right there in the subtitle to your book. I want to make sure we talk about this, Eclipse Chasers. There are folks who uh, who, who chase eclipses, uh, and it is a pretty spectacular experience. Uh, we had an eclipse uh, at least near here in, in northern Utah a couple, two or three years ago. And uh, where we are here in Logan, it was only a partial eclipse, but it was enough to, to give me... Uh, you know the the a, a taste of it. And the temperature dropped. <laughs> uh, it was it, it the the you know the sun was mostly uh, covered. It was a pretty spectacular experience. I can see why people chase eclipses. Uh, tell me about this. Well, uh, my first experience uh, was back in the the seventies when I saw the eclipse uh, go through uh, a part of Minnesota, and uh, for me, you know, seeing that happen. You know, we're used to seeing the, the stars slowly come out one at a time. And we have to, you know, traverse um, uh, civil twilight, nautical twilight, and then into astronomical twilight. And that takes, you know, a period of time, depending upon where you are uh, on the planet. But when the lights go out all at once and all the stars appear instantly, I can understand why people thought the world was going to end. Because it's an, an, a it's a startling startling event, and uh, the it, the the last one that went through 2017 was the most widely viewed event in uh, the history of the planet, and um, are are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yes, it. So uh, yeah. The next, Go ahead. The, the, the next one that's going to happen is in 2024, and it's going to pass through a huge swath of the American population. And one of the things that I foresee as being uh, something that the locales need to address for people to really be able to take in that phenomenon is most city lights are on photosensors. So when the sun covers the moon and the sky becomes dark, all the streetlights are going to come on. So people will lose that opportunity to really experience, you know, all of the stars in the sky. These are people living under a dome of light. Um, and it turns out that uh, when the Halley's Comet went by, Mayor Koch of New York City had a, a, a good portion of the grid in some of the boroughs turn off the lights so people could see uh, Halley's Comet. And I'm hoping that the people and the mayors and the, 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 the folks who are in the path of the eclipse in 2024 will address that so that the people in the path of the eclipse will not have to, you know, endure streetlights coming on during this once-in-a-lifetime kind of event. Yeah, that would. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that happens too. Uh, so, do, do we know? Uh, do we know right now? Do we know, do we know the path? Do we know if we're you know? Can oh, yeah. we find out if we're going to be near yeah. it? Yeah, you can, you can you can go online and just uh, punch in um, you know um, North American Eclipse twenty twenty four, and it'll bring up a map. It'll it starts in um, uh, Mexico and then travels through um, Texas, Oklahoma. Um, up through Illinois and, uh, you know, right through the, the, the center of the United States. But, yeah, it's easy to find a map, on a map online. Just, uh, just Google that or do a search. Yeah. Hey, before I forget, yeah, go ahead. I want to let the, the, the listeners know, if you want to order the book, the publisher is offering a 20% discount. Uh, am I allowed to make this plug? Y yes, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, they offer a 20% discount. And the phone number is 800-632-0880. That's 800-632-0880. And use the code ASTRO2021 
to get the 20% discount. All right. Very good. By the way, I pulled there's up my, this. There's my blood. <laughs> that, great. Uh, I pulled this up, Great American Eclipse, uh, April of 2024, and it uh, looks like probably the closest place to Utah. You'd have to go to Texas uh, to get the, the action. And then it goes up through the Midwest and to the Northeast. But uh, you can you can find that out and make your plans to, to travel to be in the path of that, that eclipse. Uh, we do have an email that's uh, come in. I want to read this. This is from Tom. Uh, out in Vernal, he says, uh, many people seem to think that you can't see at night, and living in brightly lit boxes, when you step into the night, you are blind. But after five minutes of adjustment, unless you're in a forest or a coal mine, you can normally see perfectly well, even by starlight. By the light of a full moon, it's positively bright. But you can't see that when all the buildings around you are harshly and excessively illuminated. So underlining what we've been saying yes. here. Yes. And, and, and it's, 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 that this is one of the disconnects that modern man has by living under a dome of light and, and in um, so much um, lighted area. They lose uh, the, 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 the magic and the soul-touching experience of being in the night. And, um, you know, the oldest stories that are ever told are the stories about the stars. And... Uh, just very briefly, um, I'm working with a, a producer, William Martens, on a television series, a one-hour weekly documentary called The Astro Tourist, where I will be hosting and we'll be traveling to different parts of the, the world. And one of the episodes that's planned is going to be at Arches. And we'll explore not only dark skies, but the stories that different cultures tell. And there's so many of them, and they're all just wonderful. And we'll bring those to life with special effects and CG. We'll um, explore different celebrations that are tied to uh, celestial events, which most of our holidays are, um, and talk a little bit about the Zodiac and how uh, the influence of the stars have permeated pretty much all of humanity. Civilizations grew up because of our ability to know when to plant and when to harvest, when to shear the sheep, when the fish would run, when the um, animals would migrate. And so we want to uh, bring back and retell some of these stories before they're lost forever. Hmm. Uh, just have a couple of minutes left here in the conversation. Uh, I want to end with uh, maybe your experience out there in Hawaii. You're, you're off the grid. You're living in a dark sky environment. What uh, what are the rest of us missing out on uh, that that uh, maybe you're experiencing out there? Um, well, you know, a lot of folks in your listening uh, area, um, I'm sure, live not far from some really beautiful dark skies. There, I'm on the coast, so we don't get a crystal clear night all of the time. And because I am down at sea level, um, then. You know, there's a, a lot more moisture in the air. And even in this remote area, I'm still having to educate people to the use of outdoor lighting. You know, I walk around my neighborhood at night and I'll see somebody's light on and it's blaring out onto the street. And, you know, again, people are unaware of how their lights are impacting those around them. But you know, the, the, there is... Uh, uh, an astronomical uh, industry out here with the telescopes on Mauna Kea and over on Haleakala and radio telescopes up on Mauna Loa. And, you know, at those altitudes, there's less and less water in the air. So the stars become even more vibrant and more uh, stunning. So the folks in Utah, you have a really precious, precious resource there. As I like to say, you're, you're sitting under a gold mine. <laughs> And uh, I hope that the folks there continue to uh, advocate for, you know, curbing uh, artificial light at night and finding ways to protect the dark skies that are over Utah. And again, you can just Google Dark Skies Utah, and it pulls up some uh, certified dark sky uh, areas that you can go and go and visit here in Utah. Uh, well, thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Marlon. His book is Astro Tourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement, and his website is mindofmarlon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. 
The decisions we make to manage Utah's rivers are complex. The creation of dams has had long-term impacts, but today, scientists are developing water management models that reflect the needs of both people and fish. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. All of us. People, fish, and many other creatures depend on Utah's rivers. Utahns rely on a system of dams and diversions to give us water. But the choices we make about how to develop water resources have big impacts on river habitats. Fish, for example, need a lot more than just water to thrive. Oxygen, temperature, food, and places to hide matter to fish. The shape and depth of a river channel, seasonal water levels, and aquatic plants all influence their survival. Dams and culverts change river habitats, causing water to pool, move slowly. This affects light, temperature, and plant life. When Cutler Reservoir Dam was built on the Bear River in 1927, it created a warm, shallow marsh that was just right for newly introduced sport fish, but too hot for the native coldwater fish that used to live there. Many fish native to Utah's rivers migrate seasonally to spawn, rear young, and find food. Barriers like dams create short, disconnected rivers that block access to resources for fish and isolate fish populations. The East Canyon Dam, built in 1964, provides a good example of how dams fragment fish habitat. The dam prevents the population of Bonneville cutthroat trout that live in the fast-moving cold water stream below the dam from migrating and connecting with other trout populations. This makes the population below the dam more vulnerable. Even if they could somehow get over the dam, the warm reservoir is another barrier. Deciding how to use water from Utah's rivers is complicated and involves trade-offs. Building dams has high environmental and economic costs, and removing large dams is daunting. But rethinking smaller barriers that block fish movement is feasible. Redesigning culverts and irrigation diversions to connect trout habitat or replacing culverts with pools that allow fish to move in steps up the river can have big impacts. These days, water scientists are working with water managers to develop new tools to help guide our critical water decisions, like models that show how we can maximize fish habitat while meeting human water needs. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Natural History Museum of Utah. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. They are all liars. Well, most of them are anyway. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Almost all the recipes I have stuffed in my grease-splattered binder at home indicate that it's somehow possible to caramelize onions in five minutes or less. It's not possible. Sure, you can soften onion in a bit of melted butter, maybe get a bit of translucence in five minutes, but even that's pushing it. You want light golden brown? Try 15 minutes. And if you want fully caramelized, rich, nut brown, and mouth-wateringly sweet, try standing in front of that pan for 35 full minutes at least. Julia Child tells it straight. In her description for French onion soup, she tells you to cook the sliced onions slowly until tender, about 10 minutes, then blend in the salt and sugar, raise the heat, and let the onions brown, stirring frequently until they are a dark walnut color, 25 to 30 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes plus 25 to 30 is 35 to 40 minutes, according to Julia. That's how long it takes to caramelize onions. So what's with the prevarication, recipe writers? Truth is, you probably know that your estimate isn't accurate. But being accurate would convert a 30-minute meal into a 65-minute meal. That sort of task can be pretty intimidating for a Tuesday evening. And it might be hard to sell a recipe that begins with 35 minutes of stirring at the stove. So why not just say soften the onions? Somehow calling food soft or translucent doesn't hit the stomach the same way as calling it caramelized. That word makes you think of 
warmth and flavor and sweetness and candy. Caramelization actually does have a lot to do with sugar. Onions are naturally sweet and get even sweeter in the pan. When cooked, heat raises the temperature in their cells until the complex chain molecules break down into simple sugars. This reaction, called pyrolysis, is what causes sautéed onions to brown and develop a sweeter flavor. When you cook those complex sugars to the teetering edge of too cooked, that sweet flavor becomes delicate, intense, focused, and irresistible, which is why people are willing to put in the time. So how do you make a properly caramelized onion? First, plan more than five minutes. Use a wide, thick bottom pan for maximum heat contact with the onion slices. Five or six large onions will yield about two cups of finished product. And any onion will caramelize, so feel free to experiment. Yellow onions tend to caramelize easily and have a really versatile flavor, but red onions are fun for their deep purple color and are great on pizzas and salads. Coat the bottom of your pan with olive oil, or you can use a mixture of olive oil and butter, about a teaspoon per onion, and add the onions to the hot oil and stir to coat. Spread them out evenly, then turn on some good music or check your email or empty the dishwasher if you must, all the time keeping one eye on the pan and stirring it occasionally. The trick is to leave it alone enough to let the onions brown, but not so long that they stick or burn. If you stir them too often, they turn limp and noodly, but stay an unappetizing parchment color. With patience, you'll begin to see the golden peeking through at about 10 minutes. As soon as the onions get soft, you can add a pinch or two of salt. Some people add a teaspoon of sugar too, but it's not necessary. If you're patient, all the sweetness can come naturally from the vegetables. You should be scraping up the sticky bits from the bottom of the pan as you go. It's all just flavor. And towards the end, you can deglaze the pan, pouring in a bit of liquid like beef broth or wine to scrape up all those yummy monosaccharides for even better flavor and color. Just let the liquid cook down for a minute or two before you pull it off the heat so the onions won't be soupy. You can store them in the fridge for up to five days and in the freezer for up to three months. It's efficient, if you love the sticky things, to cook a bunch at a time and have them handy for everything from scrambled eggs at breakfast to melted goat cheese panini the next time you want to impress your guests. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we're all about the iconic Claudia Rodin, who helped introduce the food of the Middle East to the English-speaking world. We talk with Claudia herself, and we talk with one of her biggest fans, Yotam Odolenghi. It's coming up on The Splendid Table. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.